It's called Kestrel, but it's not a falcon catching mice. It's the newest Energy Department supercomputer. Kestrel just arrived at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Golden, Colorado. Here with what it will do and some of its amazing statistics, Program Manager Kristen Munch. Ms. Munch, good to have you on. Good morning. So tell us about Kestrel. First of all, who built it? Because these things are made from standard types of components, just a whole lot of them interconnected in a unique way. Tell us about the architecture of this computer. Kestrel is being built by Hewlett Packard Enterprises, and it is NREL's third generation HPC system. But it's actually a pretty big step up for us. So we're going from an eight petaflop system on Eagle to a 44 petaflop system on Kestrel. Kind of like a five and a half times increase in computing capability for us. And you're not shutting off the old one. That'll still operate? It'll operate for a little while to enable a transition. Got it. So there's no way of combining eight plus 44 permanently and then you've got 56 petaflops. That just doesn't work that way? Usually they take up so much room that you kind of have to get the other one out of there. And kind of ironically, this is for the energy department. You're going to be looking and we'll get into the mission in a moment of renewable energy. Yet, how do you power a thing like this? Well, we actually had to do a power upgrade into our data center for this. So we're going to be going up to about a seven and a half megawatt data center. So we're adding about four megawatts to our data center in order to power Kestrel. But we still have a little bit of room left there, so we're not using that full 7.5 megawatts. All right, let's talk about why Kestrel. What are the big challenges that the lab is working on right now? So the research that is done on Kestrel, the, the thing that's unique about Kestrel is that it is the computing facility dedicated to the EERE mission, the Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy Office. The research that's done on there is researchers from actually almost all of the national labs, including NREL, industry and academia users are on there. They do everything from fundamental material science work for next generation solar cells, carbon neutral fuels. They do forecasting of solar and wind resources. They simulate offshore wind farms to try to figure out how to get the best performance out of them. And another big thing they do is they run hundreds or even thousands of scenarios of the future grid to kind of explore options of how to get to a renewable future on our power sector. That's really a big one, too, isn't it? Because I think people have the sense that the grid is getting increasingly fragile and you have brownouts and blackouts, and we didn't think of ourselves as a third-world country. And so I guess one of the challenges is to stay not a third-world country in terms of power. Exactly. So it's not only like what renewable sources you add to the grid, it's how you do it and when, and how do you make the grid resilient. Grid resiliency, though, is important even with the power mix that we have now. Exactly. And how does this operate for all of these different parties that wish to access the computer? It's a time-sharing schedule type of basis? Exactly. That's actually a really good question because it's kind of timely. We have our annual call going out in just a couple of weeks on May 10th. So what happens is NREL, on behalf of EERE, runs an annual open call every spring, and people apply. They'll apply for getting time on Kestrel this next year, and they're given time through EERE approval process, and their time starts on October 1st for one year. So it's the fiscal year. Got it. And what is a typical time unit for a machine like this? I mean, a problem I could come up with would take about one-tenth of one petaflop, and it would be over in in four (laughs) seconds. Do some of these things take all night or maybe a whole day to run type of a measure? 
Oh, yes, even longer than that. So we'll have jobs on the supercomputer that can run for several weeks even. And one of the big things about the architecture is it has to be capable of running these jobs for a very long time across many, many nodes of compute nodes and storing that data instantaneously to our parallel storage system. So yeah, we have jobs that run a very long time, but we also have jobs that are shorter, but they run thousands or even millions of them. So therefore, the people that are developing the programs that will run on it, the applications, have to do a lot of error correction and recovery because you don't want the thing hanging up in the middle of the night and it's a day later till someone realizes it's hung up. Yeah, we have lots of different programs in place that can troubleshoot things like that. We also have, you know, a team of computational experts that are available to help with that at NREL. So we get involved with some of our users' codes, making sure they're running efficiently and they don't have any problems. We're speaking with Kristen Munch. She's Laboratory Program Manager for Advanced Computing at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Colorado. And is this a fee-for-service type of thing? That is, is Kestrel paying for itself by fees from the users? Actually, Kestrel is purchased by EERE in order to enable EERE's research. So the researchers themselves don't have to pay to use Kestrel. Wow. So it's all funded by the government. You just have to have a worthy reason to be able to use Kestrel. Exactly. Very similar to the other supercomputers at the other national labs. All right. And what's the status of the machine now? Is it installed and debugged? And how do you know it's ready to switch on? So it just arrived about a month ago. So we're still in the middle of kind of bringing it up, powering it on, making sure all the components are working like they should. We'll start a phase called acceptance testing in the next couple of weeks, probably. And that lasts for a few months. So we'll bring Kestrel up officially sometime this summer. That's the first phase of Kestrel with the CPU nodes. We also have a second phase where we're adding GPU nodes later in the fall. And do you have certain programs that you know what the outcome should be and how long it should take as kind of indicators to run to test it with? Yes, we actually have a whole benchmarking team that's running very specific benchmarks that represent all the codes that our users run on Kestrel to make sure everything's working properly. And because it's made of so many, I guess, racks, and each rack has lots of blades in it and so on, they fail from time to time. So there must be a staff around all the time ready to pop in a new blade or a whole new rack unit if necessary? Yes, exactly. So our Computational Science Center has an operations team that manages most of that, but we also have maintenance contracts with the vendors, and so they can send people in for certain types of issues too as needed. And by the way, how big is Kestrel? Is it like the size of a microbus or is it the size of a barn or what? (laughs) What kind of square footage does it take? It's taking up about 2,500 square feet or so. It's about a quarter of our data center. It's about, if you can picture compute racks in a data center, it's three rows of compute racks. So a CPU row, a storage row, and a GPU row. And a generation ago, the same power would have been 10 times as big, probably. One generation ago, yeah, probably took about four rows Really, the the increase in compute capability is not really the number of nodes anymore. You kind of still need the same number of nodes, but they're all much more powerful because of the processor technology. Yeah, it's down to the chips density, really, is the big difference. Right. And do people have to make sure that the programs they develop for it conform to 
the way in which it can be used the most efficiently. That is to say, you know, just to be uh, as a non-computer scientist, I would say you don't want to send a floating point type of problem down to a integer type of computer. Right. So most of our codes have already been running on Eagle and even the generation before. So it's really a matter of making sure the codes run and are compiled for these particular processors. And we do get a lot of help from the actual processor vendors, too, to make sure that happens. So hopefully there's not as much work on the users running the codes and, you know, we're there to help them if there are any issues. And federal offices often get new things, maybe new furniture, maybe a new copier. This is more like a big deal, isn't it? Almost as if the Air Force was getting a new bomber, correct? Yeah, exactly. It's a big investment, and EERE is kind of making that investment in making sure that we have some dedicated compute resources to help us solve these problems. By the way, is battery technology, that seems to be the other grand challenge here besides the grid, but battery technology is key to almost everything in renewable for practical application. That's part of the problem set? Yep. We do have people who work on battery technologies from the vehicles office. Wow. So when people at uh, cookouts and stuff out there in Golden, Colorado have problems with their updates and stuff, do they come to you because they know you've got the biggest computer in the state? (laughs) They can. They definitely can do that. We do have a lot of local universities that use the computer. But I mean, do they ask Kristen, hey, I'm having trouble (laughs) with this software. If you can do things on Kestrel, you can probably fix my Mac. They might now. (laughs) Now that I'm talking to you, I don't know. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll get it out there and make sure they know where to turn. Kristen (laughs) Munch is Laboratory Program Manager for Advanced Computing at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, Golden, Colorado. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information about Kestrel at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Run the Federal Drive on your device. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, 
I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. She would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be 
impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.